This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The Holy Gospel is written in, in the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Hear the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please do be seated. And uh, if you've got your Bible there, do turn to Romans chapter 1. If you don't, then the passage we're going to be speaking about is in the order of service. And so do have that in front of you. really help. And also this outline of what I'm going to say will be, uh, will be helpful, I hope, a place to take uh, notes if you need to. Now what I usually do when I start a sermon, if you haven't noticed, maybe you'll notice it from now on, is I try to start with a question 
that you may already be asking. And then I take you from there to show you how it addresses our question. Now, I don't assume that you automatically think the Bible is relevant. But today, I want to start the other way around. I want to persuade you that this book of the Bible just deserves reading on its own terms. Because you should just want to know about Paul's letter to the Romans. It's simply that influential. It's just a classic. Alongside Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it stands out in the Bible as the most significant part. I'd say the same thing perhaps about the Beatles or about Bach. They're just compulsory listening, right? You, they've been celebrated by so many people for so long that you need to know what the fuss is about. You don't need to explain why. We just have to start listening. Well, Romans is like that. It's a document that's changed the course of history more than once. It stands alongside the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, and the Gettysburg Address in influence. And in fact, those texts would be unthinkable without the letter to the Romans. It's had an impact on our politics, our law, on human rights, and our culture that is so profound that we don't notice it. For one reader, St. Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo in the 4th century, it was reading the book of Romans that led him to give his life to Jesus Christ in 386 AD. Of this letter, he wrote... Paul fights zealously and fiercely on behalf of this grace of God against the proud and arrogant who presume upon their own works. For Augustine, Romans puts an end to human morality. More than a thousand years later, a German scholar and monk called Martin Luther was lecturing on this very letter, the, book, the letter of, to the Romans, and found that it was, what it was teaching him as he read it would cause a personal revolution that led to the Reformation. Instead of despairing that he could ever please an angry God, Luther found the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it changed everything for him. He later wrote this. He said, in Romans, he says, is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. A Christian should not only learn it by heart, word for word, there's a challenge for you, but also should daily deal with it as the daily bread of our souls, for it can never be too much or too well read or studied. And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. For Luther, Romans was the end of human religion. For Augustine, the end of human morality. For Luther, the end of human religion. Fast forward about 400 years. During World War I, a Swiss pastor and academic called Karl Barth opened the book of Romans and found there what he described as being like the explosion of a high explosive shell in no man's land. An explosion that creates a huge crater. In his commentary on Romans, this very letter he wrote, the epistle to the Romans is a revelation of an unknown God. God chooses to come to man, not man to God. In Romans, he saw a challenge to all the human preening worship of our own achievement and prowess. That pride that had led to the horror and butchery of the trenches of the First World War. For Bart, 
Romans was the end of human culture, the end of human morality, the end of human religion, the end of human culture. Now, you may be thinking, what? No morality, no religion, no culture. How can that be? Isn't it precisely what the church, and particularly the Anglican church, is all about? Well, maybe. But if it is, then all the more reason that we need to read the letter to the Romans and to read it closely. Because maybe we have it wrong. Because in Romans, we will have our pride in morality and religion and culture and more things too, completely deconstructed. Romans is the question to all our answers. There will be a bit of pain in that. But our pride will be deconstructed so that it can be put back together again in an even more marvellous way by the gospel of the grace of God. Of course, Paul's letter to the Romans, we must remember, is an announcement of good news. Indeed, very, very good news that the crucified and risen Jesus Christ is now Lord And that by faith in him, and not by human achievement, not by human morality, not by human religion, and not by human culture, there is now no condemnation, but instead life and hope and peace. God is not only the great judge of human beings, but he is also our merciful king, whose love extends not just to one tribe or nation, but is offered to all people. Now, a confession. I've avoided preaching on Romans, apart from the chapters at the end, my entire ministry of 23 years. Because, why? Because I'm more than a little terrified by it. I feel like a guide at the base camp of Mount Everest, gathering us all together before we make an assault on the peak. I've been up the mountain before, and that means I'm aware of the pitfalls and the crevices and the high winds and the difficult terrain we have to cross. And that's what makes me nervous. Some of it is tricky and takes some explaining. You wouldn't want it otherwise. You'd want the most profound truths in all human history to be substantial, Not trite or simplistic, but I'm more existentially than intellectually afraid. For this is a book that reads you as much as you read it. I know that it will challenge my pride once again and destroy my idols. But the view from the summit, let me tell you, it's more than worth the trouble. Paul's vision of the grace of God offered to all human beings is so astonishing, so liberating, so hopeful, so transformative that you need to come. You need to come and see it with me. And with that in mind, I I want to invite you to do a bit of prayerful reading of Romans for yourself. See for yourself what so many others have seen. Why not give yourself an hour to read this astonishing epistle this week? If nothing else, you will have conquered a classic or you've read a classic. It's a little bit quicker than War and Peace, I can tell you that. Let's make this an exercise in collectively engaging with God and his word to us. 
and helping one another to take in this astonishing view. So let's plunge in. Who was Paul and why did he write this great letter? Well, he gives us a bit of an opening of overview in, this opening, in these opening verses that we had read for us today, which is something like his elevator pitch or his overture, where he sort of sums up all the great themes that he's going to unravel in the next 16 chapters. We know that he's writing to the Christians in Rome, as we see down in verse 7, to all in Rome, he says. He's not been to Rome yet. He's not on that missionary journey that will take him to Rome. He will do that later. But his letter is meant to pave the way for his journey, to let the Christians in Rome know that he is coming. Now, we know about Rome, of course. In those days, it was the largest and most powerful city on earth, militarily, culturally, and legally. It was the centre of the greatest empire that human history had ever known to that point. How does he introduce himself? (coughs) Paul, he says, by his name, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. He's a servant, he's an apostle, and he's been set apart. He's a servant, or more literally a slave, of Christ Jesus. He not only serves Jesus as a servant might do for a wage, and have a few days off every now and again, or flip from master to master, but he belongs to him as a slave does, body and soul. He's possessed by Jesus Christ, you might say, owned by him. His whole self is dedicated to the one who he met on the Damascus Road those many years ago. He's a slave of Jesus Christ and he's an apostle. This is a word that simply means messenger or herald. And that's significant because Paul is not a prophet warning of events that will happen. But no, he's not a philosopher or a guru trading in values or principles. He's more like a reporter carrying news of something that's already happened, making a grand announcement, telling of some event that has occurred. Paul has got a story to tell, and that story defines him. One of my favourite stories from the ancient world, told by the great historian Herodotus, is a story of a particular king who wanted to get a secret message through to one of his allies. So he gets one of his slaves, shaves his head, and tattoos the message on the back of his scalp. Then he waits for the hair to grow back and send the slave on his way with the simple message at the other end, my master says, shave my head. Now I always wonder about that poor slave, because it's really only a one-use sort of message transferral system, isn't it? And he's forever the embodiment of this message, this one message, wherever he went. You really hope the king wasn't simply sharing his wordle results. But Paul is a bit the same. He's not simply the messenger conveying information. He's the embodiment of his message. It's a story that has transformed his life. So Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, an apostle, and set apart for this gospel, the gospel of God. What is this story that he's been sent, set apart to tell? Well, it's the, the gospel of God. And what is a gospel? A gospel is an announcement of good news. You see personal gospels on social media all the time. We've had a baby. We're engaged. I've got a new job. 
Here am I in Europe, uh, where all of you, the rest of you want to be, uh, at this wonderful location. They're gospels, personal gospels, aren't they? But in particular, in the ancient world, it was a royal announcement of victory. There's an inscription in Western Turkey which says that the birthday of the god Augustus, remember the Roman emperors were held to be divine, so the emperor Augustus was held, was called the god Augustus, was the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason for him. And it goes on to call Augustus, Emperor Augustus, the saviour of his people. Paul's gospel, God's gospel, is even better news than that. Now, before we unpack what Paul's gospel, God's gospel, is about, we should just pause at this word and take it in. For it's a message of good news, a message of victory. Part of explaining why this is good news will be showing why there needs to be good news in the first place and why it matters. You announce peace because there was a war. There's a need for light because there is darkness. And so Paul will say some tough things in his letter to the Romans. There's nothing anodyne here. It's not soothing news or bland news. Nothing could be less like the opiate of the masses. But it's true news. And even though it's hard news at times, it's good news. But what's it about? Well, have a look at verse 2. It's the good news that was a long time coming. This hasn't just appeared without warning out of the blue sky. It was promised long ago in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament part of our Bible, in the history and the prophets that were contained that contained the promise of the Messiah. What happened that Paul was reporting on had a long backstory. It emerged from the people of Israel, from Abraham and Moses and David and all the rest. And Paul will keep going back to the Old Testament in his letter because that story, the promises that were made in that story of the long ago, helps him to explain what had happened in Jesus Christ. It all led up, he says, to the coming of the Son of God. That's what he says in verse 3. This gospel was promised beforehand and it's about what's it about? Well, it's about the Son of God. What do we need to know about the Son of God? We need to know that he's the Son of God in two two important senses. The Son of God is a the Son of God is a very significant royal title. Again, one that Roman emperors would apply to themselves. This son of God was son of God because he was the descendant of David. See, according to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, who as Israel's king was given the title, the son of God. Jesus was born in this line of kings, known in his lifetime as a son of David, a threat to the puppet king Herod, and crucified as a pretender to the throne. But there's a second sense in which he is the son of God. And that's in verse 4. He was appointed, it says there, through the spirit of holiness, with power to be the son of God. By being raised from the dead. Now it's one thing to be in the hereditary line of a throne. It's another thing to actually take the throne. Ask Prince Andrew or Prince Harry. The current heir to the Austrian Empire, 
which was dissolved in 1918, is a man called Karl von Habsburg. He was not once mighty empire, but there is no Austrian empire anymore and no throne for him to sit upon. He has to get a job and pay his taxes and vote like a normal citizen. Now, I'm sure it's interesting for him to mention his heritage at dinner parties, an interesting talking point, but that's about all. His son, Ferdinand, has even given up to the extent that he's gone and become a racing car driver. But this royal claimant has ascended the throne with power. He's been raised from the dead and now is Lord, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the earth-shattering event that Paul wants everyone in the whole world to know about. Jesus is not simply King of Israel, but as the King of Israel, is the Lord, the kurios in Greek, or the dominus in Latin, the eternal Lord of all, Lord of an empire that knows no borders and whose triumph will never be overturned, no matter what the census data might say. And that explains what Paul is doing. Paul's story is really Jesus' story. And it's a story for the nations, the Gentiles. It's not yet another narrow or tribal religion that belongs to one people only. It's a faith that is offered to all human beings, wherever they may be. For all of them alike have need of this great news. We see this in verse 5. Through him, through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. All the non-Jewish peoples, all the peoples of the world, in in other words. Paul himself has received this grace. He is someone who himself has, has had the faith that now produces obedience in him. He's not preaching himself. It's not his own story that he's preaching. He's not sharing the secret of his success so that we might unleash the giant within like some self-help guru. He too was a sinner in need of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He had, in fact, blood on his hands and pride in his heart. He was a persecutor of Jesus Christ's people. And yet he had received grace. And with it, a mission. To share the news with the nations. Just as those in the church of Rome are. Paul will later say that he wants to come to Rome so that he can go even further, even as far as Spain, sort of the edge of the known world in those days. And the Roman church will be an important base for him. As he declares the gospel to these unknown peoples from far and near, he will be calling them to the obedience that comes from faith. That's at the end of verse 5 there. Now we'll be hearing so much more about this in the coming weeks. But here is the response that he's looking for from everyone. That they would have faith in his message. That they would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. That they would turn from false worship, the worship of idols and material things in the world, to true worship, worship of the living God. That they would switch allegiance from the powers of this world to the unparalleled resurrection power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lord. So what do we do now? Well, we read on. We want to know more. But that phrase, the obedience 
that comes from faith helps us here. Because here's the question. Do you believe the good news? Is Jesus Christ really the Lord? Is Paul speaking truly here when he declares that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness with power and now reigns supreme? Has he been raised from the dead? There are perhaps good reasons for not accepting this as true. It's a strange and supernatural piece of news. It challenges many things that we treasure. You have to decide whether it makes sense to believe such an ancient message in the 21st century. And clearly a growing number of our neighbours no longer accept this news as true if they ever did. But I want to challenge you to reconsider, or perhaps for the first time consider, whether or not Paul is telling the truth about Jesus Christ. Does it make sense? Is it compelling? Does it add up? I want you to think about that. Does it, is it actually believable news? Because if it is, this is where the obedience that comes from faith comes in. If you have decided that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has risen from the dead, that he has ascended to the mighty throne of God, then you've switched allegiances. You no longer worship inanimate things. These things no longer form the centre of your being, the focus of your life. You now worship the living God and he is your Lord. Having him as your Lord means obeying him. It means transforming your life. As Jesus as your Lord will also be your teacher. It means offering your body to him as a living sacrifice, as your true act of worship, as Paul will later say in Romans chapter 12, the opening couple of verses there. The whole manner of your life should flow out of your belonging, your allegiance to Jesus Christ who you are at work and at home, in your leisure and in your pleasure, what you do with your money and your time, and what you ultimately hope for. It means learning to love even your enemies. As Paul will go on to say, repeating the teaching of Jesus, his Lord, who found him when he was lost, who turned him from pride in his own achievement from a false view of human morality and human religion and human culture to serve the living and true God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.